How do you make somebody's favorite show? It's a giant question. I've spent years trying to figure this out. I don't think it's something you manufacture with a cold, hard series of tips and tricks and facts and tools. It's much more creative, much more nuanced, much messier, because the very notion of being someone's favorite is messy. I mean, one of my favorite things in the world might be something you abhor. One of my favorite places to eat might not be objectively ranked number one in that category or in that location, but it doesn't matter. Our favorite things are like a sense of self. We self-express by saying, that's my favorite. It's caught up in our identity. And when something is that personal, when something is that resonant and emotional, when we're irrationally biased towards something, it becomes irreplaceable in our lives. And so naturally, when we make shows, that's the space we want to occupy. We don't want to be a forgettable commodity. We want to be an original, something irreplaceable, something capable of being our audience's favorite. Today's guest loves to say, if the show idea isn't good enough to be their absolute favorite show, don't pursue the idea. Now, two things. Number one, it's a lot easier said than done. How do you actually create a premise for your show, the concept that delivers your content in such a way that it does resonate deeply? I I, I mean, it's a tricky challenge. I, I wish I could give you a pithy answer in that little space where I just stuttered. But so often it's difficult. It's elusive. I think you can put process to it, but it's not like the lightning will just strike. You have to do some serious idea development. And so the first thing I want to encourage you to check out is my course, on-demand recorded course. You can take this whenever called Growable Shows, which helps you with the premise development process. Everybody wants a show that grows, but very few people stop to develop their show into something growable. And I define a growable show as one capable of being their favorite. So number one, check out the links in your show notes and check out the course, Growable Shows. Number two, today's guest is Jay Bear, a Hall of Fame keynote speaker, a New York Times bestselling author in the business category focused on marketing, customer success, and customer experience. And he is one of the most prolific podcasters. I think he's done something like a thousand episodes himself, and he's developed shows for clients. He's also the president of his own consultancy, Convince and Convert. And Jay is one of the most influential people in marketing to boot. So he's got a lot going on. And in all of that mess and stress, he still believes the most important thing you can do is have a focused, specific premise for your show to do something that could be their favorite. In this episode of Three Clips, we break down and go inside Jay's show, Standing Ovation, a show about public speaking. And there are lots and lots of shows about public speaking. But unlike all of those shows, only Jay would have his illustrious public speaker guests tell the story behind one of their signature stories. By developing his premise into something unique in his niche, Jay could be someone's favorite. Jay could create this irrational bias towards his show. So... That's the calling card for all of our shows, yours and mine. We are not here to make a podcast. We are here to make a difference. We are here to make someone's favorite things. Favorite doesn't mean number one in the category. It doesn't mean the most expensive show to create. Favorite means their personal preferred pick for a specific purpose. So let's talk to Jay about how in the world he does that. I want to know how to do the things you do. Thing, a two, a three that only comes from you. 
Hey there, and welcome to Three Clips, where podcasters take us inside their best work. I'm Jay Akunzo, and I believe creativity, including all the stuff we do on our shows, is not about doing something big. Instead, it unfolds in the minutiae, with the tiny techniques, the micro moments, and the refreshing wrinkles on the status quo. So every episode, we ask a podcaster that we admire to dissect something they created a few little pieces at a time. Today, again, we talk to Jay Bear of Standing Ovation, who reveals some of the small stuff that made a big difference for his show. But first, a word from our sponsor. This episode is sponsored by Wistia. If you work with others, you essentially have two jobs when you make anything creative. Do the work while also securing resources to do the work. Inevitably, you have to get buy-in from a boss, a client, a teammate, or 12, some kind of stakeholder. And honestly, that process is kinda really sorta definitely terrible. Luckily, my friends at Wistia put together a resource that can help. It's a collection of research and data that can help you better secure resources to make a show, even if your boss is still skeptical. It ranges from the ROI reported by other brands making shows to the consumption behavior of podcast listeners and video viewers to what the creative techniques inside a show can do for a brand and its ability to grow audience and a lot more. Visit wistia.com and search their learning center for the phrase 37 stats. Wistia is on a mission to make business more human and builds tools to help you find, engage, and grow your audience through video and original series. That's wistia.com. And big thanks to them for their support. Okay, let's get into the conversation with Jay Bear. Okay, so Jay, your show, uh, Standing Ovation, covers the stories of public speakers' stories. Given the fact that you have this hook, the signature story and the backstory of that story, um, I remember seeing you perform one of your signature stories. It was... uh, it was about, well, to put it delicately, you started pretending to vomit on a stage, but you weren't Jay. You were a cat in that moment. Yes. Yes. So you have a signature story that involves you miming, throwing up as if you are a cat. And I was wondering if you could just tell the story of that story really quickly, because what the heck yeah, goes on there? And, and, and ironically, it's it's not my story. Uh, it is my friend Chris's story. And he has a cat and his cat uh, vomits with regularity as cats do. It's a, it's a feature, not a bug. <laughs> Uh, of the of the felines. Uh, however, Chris is a graphic designer by occupation and for reasons that are somewhat unfathomable to me, has all white carpet in his home, both floors, you know, end to end wow. snow white carpet, uh-huh. like your Jay-Z oh, or no. something. Um, he's the Jay-Z of Bloomington. <laughs> but when cats do that thing that cats do, uh, and you've got white carpet that creates some unsightly stains, it, Chris is the kind of guy who is, is sort of, I'm going to take it to the streets, man. So he sent an email to Meow Mix, the manufacturer of his chosen brand of cat food, asking them, and in sincerity, this was not a joke, to make their food only in neutral colors so that it wouldn't stain his carpet when his cat uh, vomited, um, heard nothing back but then decided to go to Facebook and take this issue public and and sent a very strident note on their Facebook page. And then uh, the Meow Mix Corporation, presumably their social media team, answered him, but did so in a way that was incredibly tone deaf and it really did not make him feel any better. And and I use this as an example to talk about the fact that so often now the interplay between businesses and their customers takes place in full view of the public. Right. 
right. you know, customer service is a spectator sport is the line that I typically use there. So to, to really make that story come to life, uh, I do, in fact, uh, pantomime with, with great sincerity, uh, a cat throwing up a hairball. So like all cats in history, on a regular basis, Chris's cat... <laughs> and uh, uh, one of my performance coaches, Michael Port, has always encouraged me to, you know, if I think I'm, I'm taking it too far, take it a little farther and, and really hold that moment as long as possible yes. um, to sort of get additional laughs. Uh, and, it, and it is really good advice. I've gotten a lot better at that story uh, over time. Okay, so we're going to break down this show, and here's how we're going to do it. Every single episode, we use the same format. Each of our three clips will help us explore one problem, so three total problems. And then for a fourth and final problem or challenge, we'll leave the clips behind, and we'll talk about the future. Here are the challenges that we're going to break down with our clips and with Jay Bear. Number one, the premise. How do you say something that actually matters and resonates? Number two, the experience the flow of the episode, the format. How do you keep people in your episodes? Number three, the connection. How do you actually develop a relationship with your audience? And then for the part that has no clip, we'll look forward at reinvention. What has Jay taken from his show, Standing Ovation, that will inform either future episodes of this particular show, although Standing Ovation is on a break right now, or other projects that he does? And a reminder to stick around past those four blocks, past the closing credits, for our final bonus segment, Play It Forward. That's where Jay is going to recommend a podcast that he loves that you won't find at the top of the charts. Okay, let's head back to my conversation with Jay Bear, where we talk about our very first clip, revealing something insightful about his premise. Okay, so the context, just to tee up our clip before we head into it, is this is an episode where Jay interviewed keynote speaker, former TEDx organizer, and speaker coach as well. She's a bit of an idea whisperer, Tamsin Webster. Um, Tamsin is one of the most powerful speakers I've ever seen live and also has some of the most incredible stories. It's like, where do you even find these things, Tamsin? You're too good. Leave some for the rest of us. And on the episode of Standing Ovation where Tamsin appeared, the first thing you hear is not her being interviewed by Jay. As with all of his episodes, the first thing you hear is the speaker guest playing a bit from their actual talk. And this bit is a story that Tamsin tells uh, about a man named Ignaz Semmelweis, who is a, an illustrious person in history. He's actually credited with inventing modern statistics, among other things. But he was actually a doctor in a teaching hospital in Vienna in 1847. Okay, let's go to the clip from Tamsin Webster that she played from one of her speeches on Jay Bear's show. Meta, I know. But here's the clip from Tamsin's talk. And this teaching hospital had two maternity wards. There was one for teaching doctors and one for teaching midwives. They wanted to keep the patient levels even, so they admitted women on alternating days. But the patient levels weren't even because of two reasons. One, women were doing everything possible to avoid one of the wards, and they were doing it because of the second reason. They were much more likely to die there. In fact, one in five women didn't make it out of one of the wards alive. But in the other ward, it was one in 50. They were much more likely to survive. Now, what was causing these deaths was something called childbed or peripheral fever. It was a blood infection. 
what was causing it and where did it come from, especially since women were dying more often in the doctor's ward. But then one day, one of Semmelweis's fellow doctors dies of childbed fever. And I assure you that he had not just given birth. Now, what had happened was he had nicked his hand with a scalpel after performing an autopsy on one of the women that had died. And that gave Ignaz an idea, because only the doctors performed autopsies. So he wanted to try an experiment. But that experiment meant doing something a little different, because this was 50 years before germ theory. At the time, doctors at the height of the knowledge thought that disease was spread by giant sheeted skeletons, which was really just a representation of something they couldn't see. They called them miasmas or bad air. And this bad air was detectable by bad smells. So the experiment was to wash the smell off of their hands. And it worked. The mortality rate plummets to match that of the midwives' ward. And Semmelweis declared the savior of mothers. So before we talk about the piece that we just played, the larger purpose behind it is that there would be a signature story from your guest played at the very top before we hear the interview. And then you would start discussing how that story came to be and take tangents and learn more about the guest. So rather than do what so many shows do, which is... Here's somebody we'd like to learn from. Let me have a meandering, pointless, unstructured interview with them. By the way, they're going to say the same 15 sound bites they said in every other show through no fault of their own because they get asked the same 15 questions. Instead of doing that mess, why don't we just have them zoom in on one specific part of their work and we we get a richer, better experience as a result? So talk to me about what you experience as the power of of a hook and how you came up with this particular hook. Well, I think every show, especially now, has to have a hook. You have to give the audience something to remember you by. And if they can't describe the conceit of the show in a sentence and the show isn't focused enough, I think it's the mistake that most podcasters make is is they're too broad in what they think their audience is going to be. And that causes them to be too broad in the show construction. The only way that you can have a successful podcast in 2020 and beyond is if you are somebody's favorite podcast in the entire world, period. If you're not somebody's favorite podcast in the entire world, you will not succeed. And the only way you can be somebody's favorite is to be specific, not general. And you can do that in a lot of different ways. I chose to do it in standing ovation by having a very consistent uh, show format, as you as you mentioned, Jay. Storytelling is is really the seed corn of public speaking success, even more so than I think some of my guests realize until they, we actually broke it down uh, on on the show. Professional speakers sometimes take it for granted because it's just so much part and parcel of what they do. I can't take um, credit for the show format. However, I borrowed it exactly um, from the show A Good One, which is the exact same format, but for Uh, professional comedians and about jokes. So they take one joke and break it down in the exact same way that we do it at Standing Ovation. So um, I I borrowed the format and applied it to a different audience. I I do, um, you know, people can't see where we can see each other on video right now. I'm nodding so hard. My head is going to fall off at the fact that you should be specific. And I think a lot of people would get on board with that idea too. That is a concept people hear a lot about. That is not a concept people often spend time thinking about. So I'd like to do so just for a moment. 
because it's yeah. it's very readily acceptable and accepted and it's very rarely executed on and i'm wondering yeah. where the breakdown comes why when we can so readily agree with what you're saying jay yes of course we should be meaningful and specific and narrow and really focus when we yeah. go to the production of it all does it all fall apart I think it's the same reason why a lot of marketing doesn't work. It's the same, you know, you don't have that persona in your head as as you're creating it. And and then for a lot of people who are making podcasts, it's their first or second go round, right? I've I've now produced twelve podcasts uh, and have been talent on six, so we've got some water under the bridge now, which allows me to not get sucked into the concept of if the podcast exists, it must then be successful, right? There is this, if they build it, they will come, or if you build it, they will come philosophy, which is manifestly untrue uh, in podcasting, certainly today. And one of the things I like to tell clients when we're producing shows at Convince and Convert for them is on average, hardcore podcast listeners listen to five shows routinely, right? That, that The data is unimpeachable on that point. So what I ask them is, they listen to five shows. You're going to start a new show. Whose audience will you be taking? And if they can't answer that question, if they can't tell me exactly what podcast they are going to pull audience from, they're not ready. I love that you brought that up because they're simple heuristics, simple questions, forcing you to look your own work in the face reveals so much. Um, I'm curious why you went with a hook that, that highlighted the performance side when I heard mm -hmm. Tamsin's speech, I'm like, there's there's an emotional punch to it. And I mm -hmm. hear that every time I listen to Standing Out, where it's starting off where it's like, wow, this is truly about the performance of it all. You make it clear with just the clip, and then your questions cement that idea. So why, when so many other podcasts seem to talk about the business side, the strategy side, the growth side of it all, did you choose to narrow in, you know, in your words, get specific around the performance elements of speaking? Well, partially because nobody was doing it. And, and if, if you, if you can't tell a great story and tell it better every time, then the, then being good at the business ain't going to save you. Right. So, you know, you, you can be really great at, at contracts, uh, or, or working with speakers bureaus, but if you can't tell a story that's, that's better than what most people have told in the past, the rest of that's nonsense. Yeah. Right. So I figured, Hey, let's go back to what, what's the foundation of this business. What you, All the way back to Aristotle, right? Tell a great story. What What are you looking for when you're vetting, you know, for this show or anything else? Like where, where you're like, great story sounds good to yeah. say. What does that mean? I don't really vet the stories. So I invite the guests and it's people who I know or I've seen or have been recommended to me. And I ask the audience for recommendations all the time as well. Uh, and then I ask them to send me a link to their what they believe to be their signature story. And it has happened, not often, but it has happened eh, three or four times where a speaker has said, I don't really have one, right? I've got several different stories I use, or I, I change them in and out so often, I don't really have one that I would hang my hat on as a signature. I'm like, okay, well then maybe this show um, isn't isn't for you, or you don't, don't believe your signature story is is a signature. Um, and then what I'll do is is trim it up. So sometimes they're a little long for for this format. So I'll I'll tighten it a little bit, or I'll ask them for a different version, etc. But um, generally speaking, I, I put that in their hands because if they're not comfortable standing behind it and saying, "Yeah, I'm going to go talk about this for half an hour," well, then you know we're sort of DOA from a show perspective. 
last question while we're on this clip. When you emerge from listening to someone else's signature story, mm -hmm. you could take it in any number of directions. That first question coming out of their clip is so important. How did you decide what to ask? It's almost like you want to stick the landing, but you also want to open really, really yeah. strong out of that clip. So how do you come yeah. up with that? It depends a little bit on what the story is. Um, so in in the case of uh, Tamsin Webster and the story uh, that she told on Stand Innovation that we're breaking down here in the clips, it's so unusual, right? That that you know my my initial question was where did where did this come from? Like how did you find this? Like this is not even Googleable, right? So so sometimes I'll ask something about that. Sometimes I will ask about, you know, how has it changed? Sometimes I want to know, like, how many times have you done it? You know, I, I don't have a formula, Jay, and I think this is why I'm a good MC, is I ask the question that I think the majority of the audience has in their head the second the clip stops. And that probably relieves tension too fast in some ways, but I don't want the audience to be frustrated and have that big question kind of there nine at them for the rest of the episode. That is why we do a segment that that you are not participating in called Facts of the Show, where I just answer the, the basic questions about what is standing ovation, who is yeah. Jay Bear, right? Because I don't want people to be held up on that stuff because it's burning in their brains when you're making a cogent point later in the episode. Yeah. You know, and yeah. I, I think that actually derails a lot of experiences. And when you're interviewing somebody, it's so dependent on mindfulness. Like I have to ignore any bit of prep I've done and just listen to what you're saying, Jay. And the prep better be internalized. Like I better That's know right. some things that I'd like to touch on in the event I have to bust one of those out to take this in a new direction. But far better is I just have to pay deep attention to what's happening right in front of me. And I think that actually kills a lot of shows because they have this agenda they want to move through and they ignore interestingness. Yeah, I, I mean, I feel like for podcast hosts, prep is underrated, but writing questions down ahead of time is overrated. Mm. I'd rather be fully prepped and have no questions and be a great listener and ask the question I think the audience wants to know next based on what the guest just said than the opposite, which is massively prepped. And now we're going to question nine. And now we're going to question 11. To me, that's a bad interview. All right, let's move to our next clip. Standing ovation has a great premise, and a great premise is a great start. Because after all, once people subscribe, you also want them to stay. So what prompts people to stay? The experience, the format, the flow. There's like this golden rule of our jobs, which is get them to the end. Once they hit play, make sure they don't hit stop. So if the premise provides motivation to subscribe, then that experience, the way you construct the actual content, provides motivation to stay. So let's hear a clip from Standing Ovation about how Jay Bear gets people to stay. And I just want to set up this clip for you. So again, it's from the episode where Jay Bear interviews Tamsin Webster, and they're starting to talk about Tamsin's process, not just for developing the Ignaz story that you heard in our last clip, but also just finding stories and how to use them in your talks. And then Jay finds this wonderful insight from Tamsin's answer. And just as a heads up, he's going to say, clappers in reference to his listeners. That's what he called the community around standing ovation, clappers. All right, so here's this little back and forth between Tamsin and Jay. 
There's a couple of stories that I have that I just haven't found the right talk for them yet. I'm always kind of both looking for new stories that will, that illustrate a point, but unusual ones that people haven't heard before. And at the same time, I'm still, you know, there are places where I'm trying to find homes for stories that I have that I think are powerful. I just haven't quite found the right lesson for them to teach yet. Clappers, I want to make sure you hear what Tamsin said there. She has stories that she knows are meritorious. They're smart, they're capable, they're good. But she doesn't have a talk for those stories to go into yet. And I think that's an incredibly important perspective because so often speakers have a story that they know is good and then they sort of shoehorn that story into the talk because it's a good story. But it, you can have a great story that at the same time weakens your keynote because the story doesn't really fit the red thread. It doesn't fit the, the underlying thesis of the presentation. It doesn't actually support uh, your perspective, your conclusion. It's just a good story, but it's a good story that's that's an outlier intellectually to the rest of the presentation. And I've still certainly been guilty of that in my career, and I think a lot of speakers are as well. So, Tamsin, what's the best way to avoid that uh, as, as a speaker, to, to say, let's make sure that even if I love telling this story, how do we make sure that that story is actually adding to the thesis instead of taking away from the thesis? What I found interesting about this question, and it's true to everything Tamsin speaks to publicly as a speaker coach and, and a great communicator and great speaker in, in her own right, is the selection of a story should have a purpose to the overall idea that you're driving at, whether it's the moment or the overall speech, you know, it's the moment in an episode, it's the overall premise of the show, whatever you're doing or selecting should have that broader idea. And I think, you know, for example, the reason Tamsin's story about Semmelweis is so interesting is ultimately he fails, but later on Florence Nightingale succeeds and kind of drawing the comparisons was very important, not only as yeah. a storytelling device because she bookends it, but also as a way to illuminate what she's trying to say. Um, when you choose to tell a story, Jay, in your speeches, um, mm. or when you're being interviewed, for example, do you have a Rolodex with an assigned purpose in your mind? Or do you tease out lessons extemporaneously? In other words, are you always saying, this is the story and this is the lesson? Or you're like, I have all these stories and I know I can go to them to teach whatever I want? Pro a hard question um more so the latter just because i do it so often earlier in my career where i spent less net time telling stories and on podcasts and etc cetera, etc cetera, i would say it was more um this story equals this lesson and that story equals this other lesson now i've got more stories than ever but I'm much better at adapting them to whatever purpose is necessary uh, to saying this lesson is, is this one. And then for a different audience, the same story can be adjusted to, to support a different point. Uh, it's something that I've really worked on over time and, and gotten better at as a podcast guest, which I do lots and lots several times a week. I, I don't, I don't bring stories with me, right? I don't have like a fanny pack of stories. Like, okay, I know that the audience for this show is small business owners. Therefore, I'm likely to tell X, Y, Z. Never, right? Uh, you know, whatever the question is, I'll pull a story out in real time and and tell that story the best I can with the hopefully the appropriate lesson uh, for that audience. 
Now, we, we picked this clip in particular because it shows you following up or shows you asking a question. You sort of point to something and you reveal it to those who maybe didn't see it the way you saw it. And then that also gives Tamsin a reason why you're about to ask what you ask. And then you ask the question. Uh, it's such a, a deft way to interview people. I'm curious if you zoom out from the question level, because you, you seem to have no problem asking the questions. Let's t- let's look at the overall interview. Do you mm-hmm. have a plan there? Are you structuring the interview? Like, let's yeah. hit on these four broad blocks or something like that. Not at all. Uh, it, it really is listening in the moment. And then when I, when I hear something that I know the audience can learn from, if it feels appropriate to do it just in sort of the vibe of the show, I will definitely double click on it and, and say, listeners, I want to make sure that you understand what she what she just said. Now I do that in this show in standing ovation in a way that I don't in other shows because the audience is so homogenous and the needs of that audience are so homogenous, right? They're they're aspiring professional speakers. I know what they need to know because I am one. If I wasn't a professional speaker, I would be less apt to understand the importance of the thing that she said that maybe she just sort of said as a one-off, but is actually really, really important. And and I wouldn't necessarily have the confidence or frankly, the understanding to essentially stop the show and say, hey, clappers, make sure you pay attention to this. If you are in that mode, you you know what the audience needs, you, you're a domain expert, you've, you're a practitioner. Um, do you still then leave it to the guest? If you're like, oh, Tamsin said X, that's a, that's a straight line to this lesson over here. Why? The listener really needs to know it. Do you give the first attempt at explaining that to the guest where you ask them, or do you jump in and say, oh, Tamsin, that makes me think about this thing I learned in my career. Like, where do you draw the line between you're the one teaching and you have to leave it all or mostly to the guest to, to come up with the soundbite or come up with the lesson? In, in standing ovation, I feel like my role is to interpret what the guest says and turn it into a lesson for the audience. That, that that's the, I'm sort of the prism through which their storytelling experiences and their expertise is filtered. And then I am sort of like the, the, the charcoal filter in the middle. And then I distill that almost as a summary to the audience and say, here are the things that, that you should incorporate into your own work to become a better storyteller yourself. Right. I have noticed that you are standing shoulder to shoulder more so with the audience than you are the the guest. Even though you're a peer of these guests, you're you are conversing with them, but ultimately you're saying, "Okay, back in our world, clappers who are the audience members of yeah. this particular show, here's what that means." Okay, let's go to our last clip. Uh, Standing Ovation has a great premise, and it's intentionally created to be a great experience. So listeners feel motivated to subscribe and to stay. And once a listener subscribes and stays this impossible thing you've achieved, you now have the opportunity to earn their trust and love. That's the job. That's how listeners become passionate fans and evangelists of your work. That's how your show grows. It's not just about doing a bunch of content. It's not just about doing sound content objectively good content. It's about creating content that connects on a personal level with your listeners. Again, favorite 
doesn't mean great, doesn't mean big, doesn't mean number one in the category. Favorite is an irrational bias that somebody feels towards your show. It's a sense of self-expression when they say, that is my favorite show. So how do Jay Bear and Standing Ovation resonate personally with the listeners behind the show? How do they create that deeper emotional connection? Well, let's play our third and final clip. And just to give you a little context here, um, this is, again, same episode, Tamsin Webster being interviewed by Jay. And right before this clip that we're going to play, Tamsin was talking about a guiding principle that she uses for her keynotes and also for coaching keynote speakers. She says that as a speaker, you have to solve the problem that the audience knows they have, or at least thinks they have, before you solve the problem that you think they have. You got to give them what they want before you give them what you know they need. All right, so let's head into the clip. And so as a, as a speaker, when you are constructing or working on new stories on a new keynote, are there questions you should ask yourself to make sure that, that you understand sort of this higher order problem solving? Oh, absolutely. And I think one of the first and what I see oftentimes when I'm working with speakers on this, the hardest thing to do is, is to take the audience's perspective on it. Uh, it, it. You really have to look at it and say, if I didn't already know that my answer was the best answer, what do I think the best answer is right now? <laughs> And why do I think my current answer is the best answer, right? As the audience member, uh, why why do I think that's the right answer? Why does it make sense to me that that's the right answer? Okay. Now, if I, as the speaker can say, oh, I understand why the audience thinks that's the right answer. And you can respect why they think that's the right answer. Then you have an opportunity to say, okay, I fully understand their perspective right now. I respect where they're coming from. How can I continue to respect that, work within their current frame of view and open a door to why, given how they look at the world right now, why they might see my answer as the right one? When you have the burden of knowledge. So that comes through in a number of ways in this episode, Jay. Uh, number one is you are a speaker. Number two is you teach a lot of things professionally. So you understand the mechanics of good teaching. Number three is, you know a lot about Tamsin and about her ideas too. When, when that's your reality, you can be so far ahead of where the listener is at or where the attendee at an event is at, that it's tempting for you to go, okay, problem is A and solution is Z. Well, what they really need is every letter in between to be hit on with you. Um, how do you, and this is a little bit of a nebulous question, but it's elusive to me in my career. How do you check that impulse that you have to get too far ahead of people listening or watching and make sure that you do ease them into whatever the big idea is. I think partially in this format, because I've, I've recorded now well over a thousand podcast episodes in my career, people are on the treadmill or they're driving, right? Or they're doing Pilates or whatever. Nobody is listening. Well, I shouldn't say nobody. It is rare that somebody is listening to a podcast with a notebook on their lap. It happens for sure, but it's rare. I believe that you have to really work to make sure that the lesson and each of the components of the lesson are fully articulated and that that is more important in a podcast than in probably any other form of teaching or education in the world. And it's not a shortcoming of podcasts. 
It's just the fact that podcasts are the only truly multitaskable medium. Try running a snowblower while watching YouTube videos at your own peril, <laughs> right? Um, try, try reading uh, an ebook while driving a car. So many people are listening to podcasts while they do something else that in this format, I think it is imperative as the host or even as a guest to, to break it down into bite-sized memorable chunks and even repeat the lesson when necessary. You just, it's not even about the curse of knowledge. I think it's just about understanding that in most cases, the podcast listener is not giving you their full attention. So I feel like it's my responsibility to make sure that they don't miss the gold in the river. And so if I can just take a pan and and put gravel in it and shake it every few minutes to say, hey, by the way, um, let's make sure that this isn't straight entertainment for you, that you're better coming out than you were coming in. Um, I feel like that's my responsibility. If that means I'm sort of dumbing it down or, or making it um, too obvious for the audience, eh, I'll take that risk. All right, it's time to mix things up. Let's talk about reinvention. Because eventually, the tried and true becomes tired and terrible. You can't stick to the same playbook, the same sound, the same exact type of episode over and over and over again. So we've talked about the premise, we've talked about the experience, and we've talked about the way it all comes together to really connect with the audience. But now, let's look to the future and explore what it takes to keep a show refreshing over time. For anyone creative, stagnation is the enemy. So what will Jay Bear do to keep reinventing? Well, what's interesting about Stand Innovation is it being a show about storytelling it certainly made me not only a better storyteller, but a better story discoverer. One of the fascinating elements of the show is, is people have used fairly innocuous and, and mundane things that happen in their life as a signature story. And I'm like, man, that's a signature story? That kind of stuff happens to me on the reg. Like, so I'm like, oh, a lot, a lot more things in my life have been turned into stories on stage and on podcasts since I started recording that show, no question. My barrier for what can work as a story uh, is changed dramatically. And because this is the first show I've recorded where I am um, a peer of the guest and a peer of the audience, it's really changed the way I interview. Uh, and, and I'm a much better listener and a much better questioner than I was before I started this program because it forced me to assume that the audience also has certainly some educational needs, but they're in the same business. And I'm in the same business as, as the guest. We are all peers. And so it's really changed the way I think about interviews. And I've done some shows subsequently to Standing Ovation, and I think they're the best work I've ever done. So Jay, uh, some shows send out swag, some shows, uh, you know, write some letters on the sky to thank their guests. What we do is we place a small donation in your honor to No Kid Hungry, um, not only because it's the right thing to do, but it's even more acute right now. A lot of families are food insecure. So we're going to place a donation in your honor as a way of saying thank you to No Kid Hungry. Um, Jay, thanks so much for coming on the show. My pleasure. That's kind of you. Thanks so much. Thank you so much for listening. Every time you do, you're supporting an independent show built by independent creators. This episode was produced by Andrea Maraskin. Original theme music by Cardboard Rocketship. 
Big thanks to our sponsor, Wistia. You can explore their tools for podcasters and video marketers at wistia.com or watch their original series. They have an actual in-house studios team that makes shows, podcasts and video shows. They are hilarious, they are insightful, and they're refreshingly different. So you can watch all their series all about building more human-centric brands at wistia.com slash series. Final thing, you can subscribe to my newsletter, Playing Favorites, to get one new idea about making your audience's favorite stuff every week, a story, an insight, a concept, a challenge every single week, ending in one question you can ask yourself when you return to work that Monday. You can subscribe to my newsletter at marketingshowrunners.com or check your show notes for links. And now it's time for our bonus segment where every episode I ask our guests, what's a show that you'd like to shout out and show some love to that is not found at the top of the charts? We call this segment, Play It Forward. Brand new show, spectacular format. And it is a show that is the perfect match for the host, right? There's hosts that can, you know, do lots of different shows. And then hosts, you're like, you know what? This person is made for this show. And is the brand new podcast, ironically, from Tamsin's husband, Tom Webster, called Deep Six, where Tom takes six different musical tracks and stitches them together thematically. And it is uh, truly spectacular. It's the kind of show that that you would hear uh, Sundays on, on NPR. He is uh, perfect for that show. Deep Six. Give it a listen. All right, that's it for this episode. I'm Jay Akunzo, and I believe the work you and I do is not about who arrives. It's about who stays. So thanks for staying with me, and I'll talk to you each Monday on a new episode of Three Clips and, of course, every Friday in my newsletter. See ya. See ya.